Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Those are verses 27 to 31 of Psalm 37, verses 19 to 42 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, July the 14th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the book of Joshua today. We're in the third chapter, beginning at verse 14 and going through chapter 4, verse 7. In Matthew's gospel, we're in, um, let's see, hang on. We're in the 26th chapter, the first 16 verses, and then in Romans, we're in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. So remember yesterday, Joshua was moving the people across the Jordan, and the priests had been instructed to carry the ark ahead of the people and go into the Jordan. And once they were in the Jordan, the Lord had promised to roll back the waters of the Jordan. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, and this is parenthetically, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So the, the water would have been quite high at this particular point in time, and we know that because they're going to celebrate a Passover right when they come into the land. So that this is the time, the season of year when it is. So they come across, they, they go in, and as they go into the Jordan with the ark, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that's beside Zarathan. And those are cities that have been gone a very, very long time, but they're they're far upstream from where, they are, where the people are. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. So they, they come out of Egypt, and they come through the Red Sea, and God parts the waters in the, in the same way that he does here, that the, the waters piled up, and then they, they didn't flow down below. And so it, it's the same thing, but 40 years separated these. And so most of the people who are now crossing over the Jordan had only heard about what happened at the Red Sea. Either they were too young or they'd not even been born yet at the time that they came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. So they're seeing this, most of them, for the very first time. And so they, they come across into this thing. They, they see their own thing, but now they're going into the land. So they've, they've finally finished their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness, and now they're going into the land for the first time after all these years. And when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. So you've got to get one man from each tribe is to go, and to take this these stones, each having one stone, and taking it from the Jordan River and moving it over into the land. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the tribe of Israel, people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. So they're going to bring it there, and they're going to erect a cairn 
um, which is just this pile of stones that's going to be there uh, on that side of the Jordan. So it's it's sort of a boundary marker at some level, but but it's also more importantly a memorial and a sign. And then he goes on to say what this sign is, and so it, it sounds very much like Moses because remember when they when the Passover was initiated, when all the festivals were initiated, that one of the things that was in view was when your son asks you in times to come, why do we do these things? And so the, the entire Passover uh, Haggadah, the, the order of service, the liturgy for Passover, the, the Haggadah is, is set up based on chi- a, a child asking questions and learning the story of Israel. And, and that's the reason, frankly, that we, we have liturgy in the Anglican world and in, in, in many uh, different denominations. It's because we want to make sure every single week that we tell the story. So the sermon can be about whatever the sermon happens to be about that week, but everything that we do is centered around the the communion. It's centered around the central act of worship, which is the celebration and the remembrance of the Lord's sacrifice. And that's exactly what they they do in in the liturgical aspects of Judaism. The reason they keep the feasts, the reason they keep those particular seasons is to remember— what happened in the past. Remember the goodness of God and the fact that they enjoyed the land and the produce of the land is completely a result of the goodness of God in providing for these things. And so it's always set up so that a child will ask the questions and then the adults will provide the answers. But it's it's a way of didactically teaching again and again and again and remembering every single year what it was that God did and why the people are who they are. So so he says, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So this is the first sign in the land that that God has brought them to this place and that he cut off the waters of the Jordan and they were able to cross over just as they had done at the Red Sea. There's no reason to put a boundary marker or anything like that in the wilderness because, well, it's the wilderness. It's not a place where they're expected to go, but, but it's expected that they'll come to this place at the Jordan near Jericho regularly, except for the fact that there's an anathema put on the reconstruction or the rebuilding of the city of Jericho after this. Um, in the gospel today, Jesus is, I mean, we're moving towards the end of Jesus' life. So he knows what's going to happen soon. And so he had finished all the sayings that he said. He says, you know that two days, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And remember, they're out near the Mount of Olives in, in that time. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people so that they needed cover of darkness. They know that this is not going to work very well. They know that they've got to do this, as it says, by stealth. And so the, these, the chief priests and the elders are all gathered together to plot against Jesus. And it seems just unbelievable that this could be true. This whole story just is, is so bizarre beginning with the, the incarnation itself, to, th- to think that God could take on flesh and come and be among us is an amazing thing to start with. But, but the fact that the leaders of the people are the ones who are turning on Jesus, the people themselves are turning to Jesus, and, and these guys feel threatened by that. So there's a problem that with, with their entire um, charade here, and they know that they can't do it 
the way during the feast because there would be an uproar among the people, but they also have to arrest him by stealth. And so how are they going to do that? Well, they've got to arrest him when he's alone or, or, or only with his disciples. And that's the reason that they go to Judas and they get him to betray Jesus. And then he can tell them, oh, he'll be most alone here in this place at this time. So they know they can't do it in the temple during the day. They can't arrest him when he's there teaching and doing the things that he's been doing. So now when Jesus was at Bethany, which is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, and so he had already raised Lazarus from the dead at this point, and so they're in Bethany, which is just outside the city of Jerusalem, in the house of Simon the leper, which is an unbelievably strange thing to read that they would be in the house of Simon the leper because the, 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 the Simon the leper would have, would have indicated that, no, nobody's going to be near this guy. And so instead, they're at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. And, and it's a beautiful thing to even see that because they have to avoid contact with lepers. And so this tells you that Simon's not a leper at this point. There can be leprosy in the house too, by the way. So the house can be uninhabitable for reasons of this leprosy, this, this um, discoloration on the on the walls of the house and i've told you before that the this leprosy that the rabbis have long thought and and long taught frankly that this leprosy is not hansen's disease which is what we call leprosy today that it's a very different kind of thing it doesn't even sound the same frankly uh, when you whenever it's described in the bible and what so what they believe is is that it's a mark and a sign that that is caused by sin and that sin they believe is um gossip and it's speaking bad, particularly about leaders, because the first time they ever see it is Miriam when she and Aaron come and speak against Moses. And then Miriam is leprous, and she has to be outside the camp for a week. So that they believe that, that this leprosy is a result of sin. And the reason they believe it's a result of sin is first because of the Miriam thing. But second, there, there's a cure, or not a cure, but after it, it's gone, then, then there's a sin offering that has to be made. It's the only disease for which a sin offering has to be made once it's cleared up, and so that's why they say that. So anyway, this, Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now what this would indicate um, to most people, to most uh, scholars, is that this woman is actually a prostitute, and this flask of ointment that she has is what gives her sort of a feminine allure. It, it, it gives off an, uh, a pleasing aroma that would attract men to her, and so that's, that's what they say. This ointment is probably nard, which comes from the Himalayans, actually. Very expensive. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a very large sum and sold, given to the poor. So that, so they're saying, I guess, that there's an altruistic motive uh, on their side. This could have been sold. We could have given this money to the poor. And now the other thing I will say, I was kind of making fun when I said altruistic motive. But the reality is, is that one of the things that happens at Passover, and in fact in all these feasts, is, is that it's considered to be, uh, to bring, not good luck exactly, but, but sort of um, God's favor it, for doing acts of um, charity for the poor during these seasons. So it's a big thing, especially when you're in Jerusalem, when all these pilgrims are in Jerusalem. So it's probably true. And you know, that at the at the Passover feast in John, when Jesus says, go do what you have to do, they think that Judas is going to go out and give money to the poor as part of their Passover celebration. Instead, well, we know what he's doing. He's betraying Jesus. So Jesus, aware of what they were saying, said, why do you trouble the woman? 
She's done a beautiful thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Well, that's a, wow. (laughs) That's a difficult thing to hear, right? I mean, there's this sort of celebration thing going on, and now Jesus turns this around and says, she's preparing my body for burial. But he's already told them. Two days after two days, Passover's coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And, and, and they just, they, they're not able to hear that and to believe it in any shape, form, or fashion. So here, Jesus says it again. Truly, I say to you, whoever, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What a beautiful thing that Matthew recorded that. This woman who is otherwise just nobody comes in and does this, and Jesus makes a promise that we will know about her wherever the gospel is ever proclaimed. And so this woman does this beautiful thing for Jesus in order to prepare him for burial, and she's doing it as an act of worship in in giving this for him. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. He he wanted Jesus to come and be the king. That was... Uh, Judas's problem is is that he wanted Jesus to be the king. And so when Jesus talks about burial and crucifixion and all that, that, that we can kind of believe that what he's, he's trying to accomplish here is to force Jesus's hand to step into um, the, the messianic role of king. And so he, he's tired of hearing this. This doesn't make any sense to Judas. This is not, he didn't sign up for this. He he signed up for something very, very different, the overthrow of Rome and the setting up of the Messianic king in the line of David, who will sit on that throne forever. Paul, remember, has finished his argument, his theological argument, um, that, uh, that consumed the first almost entire 11 chapters of Romans, and then he breaks into that doxology, that praise of God at the end of the 11th chapter, and, and now he, he goes from, okay, so now I've laid the case— for a Savior. I've laid the case that, that, that everybody gets in for one reason, and that is grace. It's because God's merciful. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't make any difference. Everybody gets in the same way. And so now what he's moving to is, okay, now that, that, now that that's done, now that the theological work is done, and you can understand how this applies to Jews and how it applies to Gentiles, now that we've gotten all that done, now how do we live? What do we do? now that we have, have understood all these things. And what he says is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because he's including everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, just as Jesus did, was exactly what Jesus did, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. So what Paul wants is for us to to present our lives as living sacrifices to the Lord that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It doesn't mean our heart's not involved in it, but, but it begins in the mind. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be like the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently about everything in the world. That's the intention of everything in, in, uh, the, in scriptures is to teach us to, to be changed. That the way we understand the world, once we accept salvation, once we accept the truth of the gospel, the, the intention of that is to change the way we see everything about the world, the way we understand our place in the world, the way we understand our lives is intended to be changed so that we can then begin to transform the world 
So once our minds are renewed, we become different people, and we understand everything about the world differently, and we're set free to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves in a different way. We don't have to hold anything back. There's nothing in reserve because we know that, that eternity lies ahead of us, and that is assured because of the resurrection. And if that's the case, then we can believe a couple of things, right? One is that anything is possible. Because if the resurrection of the dead is possible, well, then there's nothing that's impossible. And then the other thing is is that, that this world is not our home. We, we were intended for the world that we believe should be, the one where there's not death, the one where there's not sin, where there's not suffering and all that stuff, the one where we don't ask the question, why would God allow this? So it's totally different. And so now we can think differently about this world and the world to come. We can take pity on those around us who don't know the things that we know. We don't have to hate them. We don't have to be angry with them. We can take pity on them, and we can preach the gospel to them, and we can tell them about the world that they want so desperately to believe in, that it actually is. And there's a one way to get there. He says, For the, by, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God's assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function. He's speaking essentially, if you, if you think about it musically, for instance, if you think about a symphony, what you got is, is everybody playing different instruments, but these all come together to form something incredibly beautiful that none of them can do on their own. It requires every single part to play its part and to fit into its role and not to get out of line and not to try and take all the solos, for instance. And, and no, everybody's got to play their part. For this thing to be beautiful and perfect requires everybody to play their part. And, and don't think too highly of yourself. And it's easy to do that. When you have certain kinds of gifts, other people think more highly of you. And, and you've got to let that not happen. We've got to, everybody has to play their part, and it has to be true that, that we don't think more highly of, them, of ourselves than we do, than we should. And Paul is a perfect example of that. As an apostle, he, he is this person, but that doesn't mean he's not teachable. It doesn't mean that, that he is above others, and that's the reason he always refers to, to people to whom he writes as brothers. So he's writing as equals in all things, and it's important for us as Christians that we not lose sight of that. You know, it, the people who carried the stones across the Jordan, Joshua didn't write down their names, right? So it wasn't them that was important. They were chosen from among the people. It's important, it was an important job, but we but were not told what their names were because they're not to stand out. It's the stones that matter. It's the symbol and the sign that matters, not the people who carried the stones. And so it's always thus. It should be thus in the church. One of the things that I love the best about um about the Anglican world is is that, that it doesn't say who the pastor is on the sign because it doesn't matter, ultimately. Um, that's not the most important thing. We, we try and keep things in the right order. Now, do we do that well? N- not, not often, <laughs> frankly, because we, we do too much sort of hero worship, whether that's a bishop, a priest, or a whatever. It, it's, it, it can be a serious problem. We're going to dress differently. We're going to stand out differently. In the, we're going to have different roles. And some of those roles look more important because you've got to be a deacon to read the gospel, and you've got to be a priest to celebrate communion, and so you've got all these things. Um, but but those you can't let those things get out of line. I mean, th- th- that is all part of decently and in order that Paul talks about um, in 1 Corinthians 14. So Paul is trying to say here, we've got to keep everything in order, 
not in in uh, as far as roles are concerned, it's not greater and lesser. So he says, for as in um, one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. I mean, we all count together. It's the together part that matters. The body of Christ is made up of many members, and we're in, in including in that we are members of one another. We love one another like brothers and sisters. We we are um, have that same kind of love of the Trinity, and that's what it means to be members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It, it's it's a, the right way for the church to be is when, when we act as a symphony, when, when it's more than priests, pastors, whatever, and congregants. No, it's when we all bring our gifts to the table and, and serve one another and serve the Lord. And so it's the recognition that God has given gifts to all his people, and all those gifts are given for the upbuilding and the full expression of the body of Christ. And it's when we do that, when we become one in that way, when we make a same confession, a confession of him. You know, when we come together under the creed, and we say the creed in our, in our world before we do communion, and there's a reason for that, because that communion has got to be based in the truth that we proclaim. But then we also, because we've made that confession, we also then confess our sins because we recognize that we come to that table as sinners who have been saved by grace, and we've received mercy, and therefore we know how to find our place at that table now. Not in a pecking order, but, but as sinners saved by grace, gathered around the table to celebrate the goodness of Jesus Christ. He's the only one because he's the head. And without the head, there is no body. And it's a beautiful expression. And it's like those 12 stones that are stacked there. There's one for every tribe, and every tribe matters. And every tribe matters equally. And so that's the way it should be in the church as well.